This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Okay, well, welcome to another edition of TraumaCast. I'm really excited about the topic today, and I have some uh, some some great guests to help us discuss the topic. Uh, we're going to be talking about a paper that was uh, reviewed in the October edition of the East uh, Literature Review. The title of the paper is uh, Timing of Pharmacologic Venous Thromboembolism Prophylaxis in Severe Traumatic Brain Injury, a Propensity-Matched Cohort Study. It's published in uh, 2016 in the journal American College of Surgeons. Uh, with us to discuss the paper, uh, first off, let me have uh, Dr. James Byrne. Uh, James, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi there. Um, I'm James Byrne. So I'm a general surgery resident, uh, completing my residency at the University of Toronto. Um, so I'm a PGY4 general surgery resident, and I've completed three clinical years before going off into uh, our surgeon scientist training program. So I'm currently finishing up a PhD, and we'll be going back to clinical residency in July. Great, and uh, James is the lead author on the paper that the uh, the senior author was Dr. Avery Nathans. Um, and also joining us is uh, Amy Makeley. Amy, thanks for joining Hi. us. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm a faculty at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, I'm in my fourth year of practice. Uh, I do uh, trauma, emergency general surgery, and critical care. Uh, I did my training at uh, UC and then my fellowship at Penn. Um, and... Uh, this is a fantastic opportunity, and uh, it's been great to be a part of East and all it offers. Great. And Amy was the uh, reviewer for this paper for the East Literature Review. So uh, let's go ahead and dive right in. Uh, let me ask you, Amy, first to kind of summarize the paper and talk about why you decided to include it in the uh, Literature Review. Sure. Uh, so I think this is a you know a fantastic um way to look at this very important topic. Um, you guys all know um, VTE remains an uh, incredibly important uh, field of study, and uh, honestly, we are at a complete lack of uh, guidelines um, with regards to when to initiate prophylaxis, uh, specifically with patients where hemorrhagic complications would be life-threatening, and a severe traumatic brain injury remains one of those areas. Um, so I'm just going to do a quick uh, summary of the paper. And then I've got a couple of uh, talking points that I'd like to go through uh, with James. Um, so this uh, this paper um, is a retrospective uh, cohort study looking at uh, VTE prophylaxis in patients that have really isolated severe traumatic brain injury. Um, the uh, authors looked at the uh, TQIP database, uh, looking at both head AIS greater than three as well as GCS less than or equal to eight um, that really had no other severe injuries. Um, they looked at uh, patients from um, uh, multiple uh, centers, I think a total of over 180 different centers um, that collected this data. Uh, they excluded patients that um, died within the first five days that had any penetrating mechanisms, so these are all blunt traumatic brain injuries, um, that came in with bleeding disorders, 
Um, and uh, I assume that uh, these patients also were not anticoagulated. That's one of the questions I have for James. Um, mm -hmm. And these patients also had um, a lack of severe injury to other body regions. So anybody that came in with an AIS greater than three to any of those body cavities were excluded. So the really kind of main purpose of this paper that I took from was to really look at uh, isolated severe traumatic brain injuries. Uh, and what they did was uh, they looked at um, their primary outcome being DTE, including DDT, as well as PE, with secondary outcomes looking at clinically significant neurosurgical complications. So this paper did not look at um, progression of bleed on CT scan, which may or may not be clinically significant. I think one of the strengths of this paper is that it really looked at clinical significance. Um, and they defined it as um, neurosurgical interventions that occurred greater than 72 hours after admission, including a craniotomy or craniectomy or requiring placement of an ICP monitor or drain. Uh, therefore, by doing this, they excluded patients that would require that initially due to their injury, and were specifically looking at uh, complications that they felt could be attributable to um, initiation of DVT prophylaxis. Um, so that's kind of the, the background for the paper. Um, their uh, data and results, they were able to extract uh, over 3,000 patients uh, from, like I said, over 180 participating centers. Uh, looking at either early or late prophylaxis. They defined early as uh, uh, less than 72 hours from injury, um, uh, which is another question that I'd like to uh, to talk to James about. Um, ultimately, my hope is that we could push that cutoff even earlier, um, and I know that he has some justification for why taking 72 hours, but I'd like to uh, to hear that from him. Uh, and really looked at the outcomes between early and the late prophylaxis. Um, they uh, they took uh, an approach that uh, I thought was quite unique in terms of the data analysis, uh, looking at three analytical approaches that all had um, kind of very uh, specific things that they were looking at. One of those was a, a propensity scoring uh, to look at the, the odds ratio for a VTE, uh, comparing matched patients that either received early or late prophylaxis. Uh, their second question was to really dig down and look at the specifics about type of prophylaxis, comparing unfractionated uh, standard subcutaneous heparin uh, versus low molecular weight heparin. And then the third one that uh, I've also found intriguing was that they actually looked at center-level analysis, comparing uh, rates um, among the centers to try to determine if hospital practices uh, affect the outcomes. Coming from a center that screens very vigorously uh, for VTE. Uh, this was important because this analysis allowed them to pull out centers that uh, screen for uh, uh, DVT, uh, which were a minority of centers in the study. Um, as far as results, um, they found that uh, patients that um, prophylaxed earlier really had absolutely no change in late uh, neurosurgical um, complications. Uh, comparing the early prophylaxis to the uh, late prophylaxis. Um, earlier prophylaxis uh, patients, earlier prophylaxed patients had lower rates of PE and DVT. Um, and looking at the um, 
uh, second stage of their analysis, they found that uh, patients that received uh, low molecular weight heparin had a lower odds um, of uh, VTE compared to patients that received unfractionated heparin. And then in looking at the center analysis, um, they found, uh, of course, considerable variability in centers, um, but patients that were able to achieve the highest quartile of early prophylaxis, again, defined as less than 72 hours, they had the lowest odds of VTE, um, comparing the highest quartile to the lowest quartile. This didn't uh, pan out in significance for um, PE, only DVT, uh, likely due to the uh, low number of patients that sustain PEs. Uh, in looking specifically at the screening analysis, they found no difference in patients or in uh, centers that screen compared to centers that don't screen. Um, and this is something that I would, uh, would like uh, James to kind of weigh in on because um, of the bias from screening centers where we pick up many more DVTs than, than we would see otherwise. Um, but that didn't seem to pan out in their uh, final um, analysis. Uh, so overall, in conclusion, in patients that had severe TBI um, benefited from early prophylaxis as defined as initiation of uh, chemoprophylaxis within 72 hours compared to those patients that had late prophylaxis with no uh, increase in neurosurgical complications or death um, as defined as craniotomies, craniectomies, or requiring placement of ICT monitors after 72 hours. Um, I think it's a fantastic study. I think that we are um, fighting a couple of uh, studies from the early 2000s that have attributed um, initiation of prophylaxis in the neurosurgical literature to worsening outcomes in terms of bleeding. And I think that as trauma surgeons, we see a very unique cohort of injured patients um, where VTE rates are incredibly high, where we need to continue to push for earlier and earlier prophylaxis. Um, so I think I'd like to uh, turn it back over to um, Dr. Byron um, specifically to ask him, first of all, is this study uh, and in doing the study and going through all the literature, um, does he feel like this study will be able to combat biases um, to holding off and prophylaxing our uh, patients with a traumatic brain injury. Uh, and in terms of what he hopes to gain from this study uh, with respect to our neurosurgical colleagues. Uh, my second question is um, specifically, and my second talking point is specifically, with the CT scan cha changes um, not being included in the study, does he feel like it is uh, definitive enough to support VTE prophylaxis early? Uh, or are there some concerns uh, that uh, we are missing worsening clinical pictures because the uh, really the main uh, outcomes were pretty um, were pretty significant in terms of patients progressing to needing a craniotomy or a craniectomy or an ICP monitor? And so are we missing increased morbidity? Um, that's maybe not as extensive as their outcomes. Um, thirdly, if we could discuss the screening uh, centers, again, coming from a program that screens our biases that uh, we uh, we pick up more um, BTE uh, than um, if we were not going to screen. 
uh, whether or not these are clinically significant is another question. Um, but if we can comment on their results that they found, whereas where VTE screening centers really had no increase in the uh, in the uh, number of um, complications um, seen. And so I think I'd like to start the discussion um, with those main with those main talking points um, and turn it over to uh, James. Right on. Um, so thank you, Dr. Meekley. I think, uh, you know, you really summarized the paper uh, in a way. I mean, I couldn't, couldn't do any better there. So that's fantastic. So I can basically just sort of um, give a little bit of a background in terms of what our rationale was. So um, working with Dr. Nathans, um, who I just have to acknowledge as being a, a fantastic supervisor um, on this study, um, as well as others, um, you know, we really wanted to look at this patient subpopulation um, with traumatic brain injury because they really represent one of those interesting groups uh, where there's a lot of variability in practice um, in terms of, uh, you know, starting thromboprophylaxis. Um, and um, basically our goal was to examine specifically the importance of uh, timing um, in this patient group. Um, and so um, one of the sort of some of the gaps from looking at the literature were um, you know, surprisingly, it still sort of remained unclear whether or not timing actually influenced uh, VTE rates in patients with severe TBI um, for the reasons that you described in terms of some of the sort of shortcomings in the literature. Um, so just in terms of some of the, t the specific areas that you talked about, um, in terms of how I think the study uh, might sort of be used to address some of the biases that are present in terms of delaying initiation of prophylaxis, so I think, I mean, there are certainly limitations with this study um, that sort of uh, prevent or affect its uh, generalizability to, uh, you know, the patient level at the bedside. Um, and one of those that you pointed out um, was uh, the fact that we weren't able to capture um, changes or progression in intracranial hemorrhage on repeated CT scans. Um, and so I think the main point with the study is really that we were able to, um, to a fairly strong degree, be able to show that um, earlier initiation of prophylaxis, and here, we, you know, we, like you said, we used the cutoff of 72 hours, really does provide um, a benefit or appears to provide a benefit um, to prevent um, or reduce the risk of DVT and PE. Um, so one of the things that we really wanted to uh, sort of look at was pulmonary embolism because one of the other limitations of previous work was um, not really being able to look at uh, PE rates. Um, and so I think that what this sort of really shows is, is the importance of pushing the envelope of, um, you know, when it is uh, safer to initiate prophylaxis at an earlier time. Um, and I think it really supports uh, some of the ongoing work that's happening um, in places like Parkland where they're examining uh, maybe a protocol-based approach to safely initiating prophylaxis in patients with, you know, varying degrees of severity of uh, TBI and intracranial hemorrhage. Um, so I think, uh, you know, our study falls a little bit short in terms of being able to show that, you know, um, who exactly prophylaxis is safe to initiate at 72 hours, but I think it sort of sends a strong message that it really is important um, and um, sort of emphasizes that we really need to uh, be pushing that envelope to earlier where, where it is appropriate. Um, and so I think it supports uh, work that's ongoing and will hopefully be coming out soon um, showing um, basically when that is safe to do. Um, and it sort of supports uh, a little bit that um, it appears to be uh, safe from uh, a couple of angles in terms of um, no increased risk of um, 
uh, neurosurgical intervention or later neurosurgical intervention or death. Um, so you also pointed out that, uh, you know, we weren't able to look at patient level outcomes like perhaps neurologic decline um, and, and progression of hemorrhage. Um, so obviously that decision, that has to be looked at at the patient level. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the worst outcomes such as death or um, uh, delayed neurosurgical intervention didn't appear to be different between earlier and later groups. Um, in terms of screening, so you mentioned, uh, you know, you, you uh, sort of summarize our findings in terms of um, centers that seem to more routinely start prophylaxis earlier had lower rates of uh, venous thromboembolism. Um, and uh, specifically, one of the questions that you had there was, um, you know, the rationale or importance of looking at um, the, the topic of uh, screening. Um, so obviously, um, you know, screening, uh, routine screening uh, practices for thromboembolism is something that varies across centers. Um, so we would be remiss if we didn't sort of consider that as a potential confounding factor um, that perhaps uh, centers that appeared to have lower or higher rates of VTE might just be those that are screening. Um, so what we did was we looked at centers that um, were more routine screeners, um, and we didn't find any association um, between uh, frequency of screening and uh, and our outcome. So essentially what that does, I think, is it sort of supports that the signal that we're seeing um, is uh, perhaps more likely to be related to the practice of timing of thromboembolism and prophylaxis um, rather than a confounding factor like screening. So let me ask uh, uh, James, if I can, just um, what uh, what are your neurosurgeons doing in Toronto? Because I'll tell you, in the places where I've worked in, in different hospitals, the DVT uh, chemoprophylaxis seems to vary with whichever neurosurgeon is on for a acute call that week or whichever resident uh, we get to see the patient or, you know, the phase of the moon or the way the stars are aligned. And so even mm -hmm. when we have good intentions and we have a good protocol in place, it still seems like we have a hard time adhering to it. So what are you doing in your shop? And, and has this paper, was it, uh, was this paper a response to your practice in Toronto or has your practice responded to the paper, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so uh, just a little bit of background in terms of what happens in, at uh, Sunnybrook in Toronto. So um, Sunnybrook is, I, I guess, a little bit unique in the sense that it, they benefit from um, having a dedicated thromboembolism team, um, which is sort of led by Dr. Geertz. Um, and so there's actually a dedicated uh, consulting team, which uh, sees pretty much every patient, uh, every major trauma patient that uh, comes in. So, um, you know, it's, it's not as much of a uh, sort of mixed decision between the neurosurgeons um, and the intensivists. Um, the, the thromboembolism team sees every patient uh, with uh, severe or with traumatic brain injury. Um, and one of the key factors that's taken into account, of course, is presence of intracranial bleeding. Um, and so, you know, I guess one of the consistent things is that it's, it is a, uh, a consistent group or team which, uh, which makes the decision to initiate prophylaxis. And it's sort of a, it's a mixed decision based on, um, you know, essentially the current evidence that's out there. Uh, things like, um, presence of intracranial blood, uh, change on repeated CT, uh, whether or not the intracranial hemorrhage is, is stable over time. Um, but it's still often that patients with uh, TBI at our center um, do have a delayed initiation of prophylaxis. Um, so, um, you know, the this, this study hasn't uh, directly changed practice at, uh, at Sunnybrook. Um, you know, I think the, the, the 
the, the studies that will change practice at the bedside will be those like, um, uh, you know, the, the Parkland group uh, doing their studies prospectively looking at uh, risk stratification and showing that it's safe to uh, to initiate prophylaxis um, in patients with stable CTs and things like that. Amy, how about you guys in Cincinnati? What are you guys doing? Sure. So our standard um, practice is to obtain a repeat head CT at six hours for any evidence of intracranial blood, whether it be intracerebral or uh, extraaxial. And then we've got a standing protocol that our neurosurgical colleagues have uh, given us that as soon as that head CT is stable, uh, we can start uh, DVT prophylaxis, either sub to heparin or Lovenox at 24 hours after that time point. Um, so I think getting that protocol from them took quite a bit of effort, um, but we're, we're seeing uh, that we no longer have to ask on each patient because um, that's where a lot of the delays come in, I think, just from trying to navigate through the system and getting an okay uh, from a resident or a neurosurgery attending. Uh, and so we've gotten the green light that we initiate prophylaxis as soon as that uh, head CT is stable, 24 hours after that, the time of that head CT. Um, I think that uh, that it's helped uh, in terms of our uh, DVT uh, rate. Um, we do uh, struggle a little bit more with uh, with spines, um, but uh, I think we want to limit our discussion today to uh, to CTs. And I think one of the other mm-hmm. things that we can touch on um, are there's there's changes in your head CT that are significant, and then there are changes that really aren't clinically significant. Um, so seeing an evolving uh, hematoma, which wouldn't necessarily be stable. Um, but really isn't going to change um, change the outcome for that patient. And I think we struggle a little bit in, in in those patients because then we have to wait on prophylaxis on those patients. Uh, and so really uh, digging into uh, which patients uh, can be prophylaxed earlier is going to hopefully be our next focus um, because right now we lump you know, severe with a with a terrible head bleed into the same protocol as um, patients that have you know this tiny little dot of blood in their brain with a GCS of 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you touched a little bit on that in terms of the the variability of brain injury that's out there. And uh, I'm curious, uh, first of all, kind of what Dave does at, at his institution currently, and then also we can talk a little bit about if anybody's starting to tailor. Um, any of the prophylaxis or any treatment uh, to kind of more individual brain injuries or if everybody's just lumping them all in the same bucket still. Yeah, so a quick follow-up. Do you do you repeat head CT for everybody? So if they do have the tiny little dot of blood like you mentioned, a little, you know, one pixel lights up, uh, you get a repeat at six hours on those folks too? We get a repeat at six hours, yep, okay. even if their GCS remains the same. Yeah, I I think we struggle with that uh, here at my my shop now. It's um, there's a lot of sort of you know interprovider variability in terms of what we think is uh, worth getting a repeat head CT on because we we oftentimes won't if it's, if it's a tiny little thing and they don't have any neurologic symptoms we might just observe them for a period of time and not repeat the CT. But it kind of depends on again who's on call and and those types of things and and. You know, so when really do you prophylax to to... those then? If you can't, if you can't call a stable. Yeah, well, and in bleed. many of those patients, mm-hmm. we might 
you know, keep them overnight and send them out the next morning and not give them any prophylaxis at all, assuming that they're ambulatory and things like that. And that's that's where I think, and I and I think that probably my center is maybe maybe more representative of kind of the average trauma center um, out there is that um, there's it's really kind of hit or miss and and it's not uh, formalized. So, uh, James, what are you guys doing with? Do you get you get repeat head CTs in Toronto for every every drop of blood? Pretty much, yeah. So, I mean, I know from, you know, uh, pretty much every trauma patient, um, multi-system or not, who has, uh, you know, even a trace subarachnoid or something is, is, uh, is a neurosurgery, uh, consultation. Um, and so I know that creates a fair bit of work for them. And I, and I think that they're looking at that as well in terms of, uh, whether or not that's absolutely necessary. Um, so definitely, I, you know, I think the majority of those patients do get repeat CTs. It still even very rarely changes. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, so very, very changes outcome. Mm-hmm. Right, the number of changes that progresses is, is is probably the minority. So the other the other question I have for both of you, and maybe James, I'll ask you first, and then uh, then ask Amy to comment as well. But um, the choice of unfractionated versus low molecular weight heparin, um, in my experience, that again has been sort of you know there's there's one neurosurgeon who insists on unfractionated heparin, whereas others are more uh, forgiving. Um, and again, not a lot of hard evidence behind those choices is kind of more tradition and practice. Um, how does that play out in, uh, in Toronto? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I know at Sunnybrook, uh, there's just essentially for quite a while, the the, uh, the choice has been uh, low molecular weight heparin. Um, and I think that comes with just a, a long experience with the team here um, studying outcomes. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, even patients with TBI, they felt that they uh, haven't really uh, had the problem of, um, you know, clinically significant uh, bleeding um, that they've attributed to the choice of low molecular weight over unfractionated heparin. Um, and there's all, they's all, they've also studied uh, reasonably extensively sort of uh, some differences between anox and or uh, low molecular weight and unfractionated heparin in terms of things like the, uh, you know, the risk of HIT, which I know is another topic, um, but um, so, I, you know, I think that the choice in, in Toronto for us is uh, low molecular weight heparin. Amy? So we do, so for, a, for an isolated TBI, uh, they would probably go on heparin, but for our severely injured trauma patients, uh, we still do a risk assessment profile score, um, and we do uh, Lovenox in patients that have uh, essentially a higher risk uh, for um VTE. So if you wrap greater than or equal to five, um, which uh, for people that, that don't use the wrap score, you get points for obesity, um, for any central line that's been in, for any sort of blood transfusion or surgical procedures uh, that the patients undergo, uh, any AIS greater than two for chest, belly, uh, head greater than two, uh, spinal fractures. And so we, we add those numbers up um, and most probably the majority of our trauma patients very easily meet a wrap of five, so our go-to is Lovenox. If you came mm-hmm. in with uh, with you know a broken arm, then of course you'd wrap for something like heparin. Uh, but the majority of time we use uh, we use Lovenox for prophylaxis. Okay, um, James, if we could for a second, um, tell, I want you to talk a little bit about your propensity score matching because I think it was a really unique feature of this paper and one of the big. You know, one of the big uh, knocks against many of these papers that try to show a similar mm-hmm. thing is that uh, you're not comparing apples to apples. And so this right. 
this is your guys' attempt to try to answer those critics, right? You tried to figure out how do we compare apples, to apples and so on and so forth. And yet, it, it, the, the way that it, it reads in the paper is a little bit sort of statistically dense if you're not, uh, if you're not, you know, if you don't have a PhD in statistics. So is there a, can you give us like a layman summary of, of how you did it and, and why and, and, uh, what this adds? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, the biggest challenge with, you know, retrospective data is the fact that, um, you know, there's inherently some kind of systematic selection going on in terms of who get what, who gets what treatment. Um, so rather than the ideal situation, you know, where you've got a study where patients are randomly assigned to receive treatment A versus treatment B, there's just going to be these systematic differences between the two groups. Um, and so there's obviously a few options, right? The multivariable logistic regression and things like that. Um, but when thinking about what approach we were going to take, um, we thought propensity score matching um, might be good here. And so I think that um, propensity score matching is good when there's clearly defined treatment groups um, and you're able to take into account um, perhaps um, ideally a wide variety of the potential patient or injury characteristics that led to, um, you know, the selection for treatment. Um, and so I, I think that this basically, that worked for this study because of the, a uh, fairly high degree of uh, quality we were able to pick up on um, some of the granular injury diagnoses with these patients. Um, so um, in using, uh, basically in deriving the propensity scores that are used to match patients who got early versus late, we were able to take into account um, sort of a series of different patterns of intracranial injuries, um, as well as uh, um, other sort of uh, patient factors. Um, so. Uh, you know, just when you're when you're thinking about uh, what type of statistical approach to use, um, propensity score matching when you can do it um, is supposedly um, better at controlling for confounding. Um, there's always sort of the issue of unmeasured confounding and what what are you not able to account for, which is always sort of a topic of discussion in terms of limitations. But that sort of explains why we chose propensity matching because um, we were able to sort of account for a fair number of those potential confounders. And you guys did, it looks like, uh, three different approaches with uh, trying to match these patients, right? The first was to sort of look at the, uh, you know, the probability of progression, right? And uh, then yep. another approach was to look at the independent effects of the specific predictors. Yeah, that's right. So um, what you're alluding to there is, um, you know, essentially we uh, we were able to end up with a fairly large, um, you know, 2,500 patients overall in a well-balanced cohort in our propensity-matched groups. Um, but then we also uh, looked at a couple of subgroups um, in our multivariable model. So, um, you know, obviously the greatest concern is that patients who are receiving early prophylaxis might be more likely to um, have a, a bad outcome. Um, and so we looked at patients who met some of the criteria for um, the sort of the most severe high-risk um, group in uh, specifically we used the modified burn norwood criteria, um, which is relevant in, the, in, uh, in terms of some of the protocols that are being uh, assessed um, in terms of uh, stratifying patients for risk of hemorrhage progression. So we, we picked a subgroup of patients uh, specifically who had undergone um, an earlier neurosurgical intervention um, and sort of just, just confirmed with our data that there wasn't a higher risk of mortality in patients who got earlier prophylaxis in that subgroup. 
Yeah, I, I, I will admit that reading through that part of the uh, paper, um, you know, when, once I got to caliper width, I was like, uh, I'm definitely going to on this one. So, yeah. Um, I think uh, especially being in it at the moment doing a graduate degree, I think I go a little bit crazy, um, <laughs> just sort of, uh, you know, stuff that I've just been learning right at the moment. So, Can you speak a little bit, too, because I'm on the, the – the same uh, along the same lines. When you're talking about the limitations of the statistics that you guys use to account for yeah. confounders, how you needed it to be present in 100% of the group but absent from the others in terms of the, the sensitivity of some of the methods you were using, you feel like there's right, anything yeah. you could have missed in this that you yeah, were worried so, about there? Well, for sure. So, um, you know, I think what you're alluding to there is we sort of we did a bit of an analysis, uh, sort of asking the question, like, if we are missing confounders, which is certainly one of the limitations of retrospective studies, um, how big would these hypothetical unmeasured confounders have to be in terms of their effect for BTE? Um, how would how big would these uh, confounders have to be to basically fully explain the difference between the groups? Um, and so what that analysis is, is sort of a bit of a, um, like a qualitative assessment of just how big would that, um, hypothetical unmeasured confounder have to be? Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, not directly translatable into term, in terms of, uh, you know, is it possible or not possible? But it sort of gives us the sense that, um, the signal that we were seeing in terms of earlier prophylaxis being associated with lower risk of PE. Um, is strong enough that it's unlikely to be due to unmeasured confounding. Um, and so it's sort of a way of just, uh, you know, measuring that and taking a look at it and saying, um, you know, there's actually a big difference here that is unlikely to be explained by um, some unmeasured factors. Um, so if that difference was smaller, you know, you might be a lot more um, sort of uh, concerned about uh, the potential that this was just things we weren't capturing. So I think that in, that uh, analysis and in, in combination with just looking at the factors that we accounted for, um, you know, sort of uh, things like uh, intracranial hemorrhage, different types of intracranial hemorrhage and, and whatnot, um, sort of make it unlikely uh, that there are some unmeasured confounders that fully explain the difference we're seeing. Okay, so... Um... Let me ask you this, Amy, first, um, and then maybe give James your comments as well. Is this paper enough that I can sort of put it onto my neurosurgeon's desk and say, "See, see, it's safe to do it. We should change our protocol, or we should change our practice." Is this is this paper enough evidence, or are they going to still have objections? You know, I think I think looking and, and knowing our neurosurgical colleagues, um, I think based on the limitations that uh, that. James has already alluded to. This by itself probably isn't enough. I think it helps. Um, I think that we should push even earlier, my own personal bias. Um, I would love to see that 72-hour time point be, you know, 36 to 48 hours after injury in an ideal world. Um, I think that this is this is definitely helping our cause, though. Um, but I, absolutely, I think uh, I think we need more like this. I think coning down. Uh, I think this is very supportive of no devastating complication. I think knowing our neurosurgical colleagues will get the argument that you know it didn't really 
take into account um, a lesser morbidity that may happen when you have a, a little bit of a worsening bleed. Um, but I think it, it's absolutely we need more. We need more of the same, and I, I applaud James and his colleagues in, uh, in putting this out there for us. James, what do you think? Did you guys did you guys show this to your neurosurgeons and say, look at look at what we found, or were they involved in the process, or how did this uh, affect the practice? Yeah, well, no, for sure. So one, I mean, one of the colleagues or one of the uh, one of the co-authors was uh, is a neurosurgeon, Doctor Peruzman, is one of the neurosurgeons from Sunnybrook, um, and so. Uh, it was very interesting kind of, you know, coming together and, and discussing this paper. Um, so I think like uh, Dr. Makeley said, uh, you know, I think this paper alone is not enough to basically demonstrate, you know, you can't say from this that, you know, essentially every patient should have prophylaxis started within 72 hours. But I think it it basically shows, um, I think, uh, sends a quite strong message to show that um, earlier prophylaxis does uh, prevent um, some important complications, uh, PE and DVT, um, and so um, you know basically raises the flag that um, perhaps some of the studies that are ongoing now that will uh, take into account some specific risk stratification um, are are needed to uh, to allow us to push the envelope for earlier prophylaxis. Um, so, yeah, so I, mean, I think one of the key limitations was that we weren't able to look at some of the important factors that need to be taken into account at the individual level. Um, but basically, earlier where we're safe and appropriate um, is uh, is important. Um, and so the question now is sort of uh, where is where is that line in, in uh, you know, in your patient? Um, so I think there's some studies that uh, will help to kind of uh, nail that home as well. Yeah, I think uh, one of the responses that I've heard in the past is uh, how many DVTs equals one worsening head bleed because they're not mm-hmm. exactly equivalent complications. Yeah, very interesting. And, um, yeah. I, think that's, I think that's a fair point. So, and I, I also get the uh, it's the courage of the non-combatant, or I have to fix it when it goes wrong is the other thing mm-hmm. that I, I sometimes have uh, thrown back at me. So, no, well, great. Um, thank you both for the for the insight and the comments and the work that you've both put into not only the, the review, uh, Amy, on your end, but uh, the tremendous amount of work that went into this uh, project. Uh, James, you and your uh, co-authors, uh, really, really a good study and really well done, and uh, congratulations on, on getting this published and out there for the, for the good of our patients. Well, thanks, Dr. Morris, for the chance to talk about it, and Dr. Makeley for, uh, for taking the time to review it all and uh, a good conversation. Absolutely. Thank you guys both. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.